Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. As the NCAA wraps up a historic convention this week, much uncertainty still surrounds its future. There are those naysayers who believe the NCAA should be disbanded and college athletics should start over again. Some believe that the NCAA should break apart into two kinds of athletic entities, one being a commercialized sport organization, the other being an educational sport organization. Still others believe that besides shifting more responsibilities to both the divisions and the conferences, that perhaps we should move to sport federations, eliminating the all sport conference model that has been a foundation for college sports for over 115 years. It's crucial that college presidents, trustees, and senior campus leaders understand the wide ranging perspectives when it comes to collegiate governance, as they are being asked to choose, not just this week, but in writing the divisional constitutional documents and the compliance and enforcement that goes along with it. Fortunately, we have the perfect guest today to help us think through this and understand some of these topics and much more. Julie Rowe Lash is the commissioner of the Horizon League, a league well known for its basketball success in recent years in both the men's and women's March Madness. She was the deputy commissioner of the conference since 2014, and prior to that spent 15 years in the NCAA national office in enforcement and other legal matters. Julie, welcome to the podcast, glad to have you. Thank you, Karen, it's great to be with you. So let's start with the basics. Explain to our listeners how involved each institution's president is in conference matters. Where are they asked to make decisions on behalf of the conference and where are they just kept informed? And is there an executive committee that works with you? Sure, terrific. So the, our presidents and chancellors really are, with the Horizon League and with most conferences, they're the board of directors for our organization. So they have fiduciary responsibility. So I would say first and foremost, that includes, of course, financial oversight for just the health and welfare of the league. So they're very involved in terms of our investments, our financial forecasting, and of course, our overall budgeting, not perhaps the micro details, but ensuring that we're being fiscally responsible. I think the other big piece is just our management of membership as member universities leave and join that's really a matter of board oversight and decision-making. Of course, athletics directors um, certainly want to be part of the input process and sometimes coaches, <laughs> but nonetheless, membership strategy as well as ultimate decision-making, that is really done at the board level. Um, and then I would say that the pieces that to your point of what perhaps do they need to stay in the know on but less so from a decision-making, that's probably more in that competition realm. So and when it comes to scheduling, where should the location of our 19 championships be, bracketing, things that really matter from a competitive fairness and equity standpoint, but aren't as obviously critical from a macro overall health of the league. Um, the, the only point I would pause on is last year with the pandemic, our presidents and chancellors became much more involved from a um, oversight of our safety and COVID protocols, because that also relates to risk management naturally, but also they wanted to just make sure that they knew exactly what we were doing to ensure safety once we actually decided to play competition. Do you have an executive committee that you, you work on as a smaller group, a subset of the board, if you will? We do, and, and with our board and each conference is perhaps a little different, but with our board, we actually have three committees. 
There is an executive committee and they really meet on the off months when the full board does not meet to handle that business that may pop up from time to time. And they're, they, they handle the tough task of my um, supervision and oversight <laughs> evaluation of the commissioner. Um, but then you have an audit committee and then you, we also have a finance and investment committee. Got it. Got it. So how do you as the commissioner bring new presidents up to speed? I suspect uh, many have not had much experience dealing with athletics governance and the nuances of media contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, we, we actually revamped our orientation onboarding um, just a couple of years ago, and, and I believe it's working successfully. It's probably due for just a, a, a pit stop of evaluation. But what we do is first, there's an orientation session in person um, as long as COVID allows it between where I go to their campus and also invite the athletics director to join. But we walk through the key strategic priorities of the league. What are the roles and responsibilities of the presidents and chancellors and even our governance structure? We're our own little mini bureaucracy. So it's important for them to understand those two areas that I noted that they have oversight. But then what about our athletics directors and then how do our coaches and other administrators and our student athletes feed into this? really comprehensive, inclusive governance structure. And then the final, the other piece that we've added to that is um, the option for a mentor. So they could have a peer mentor who, frankly, they can just call before meetings or after meetings, like, hey, what was that topic all about? Or could you give me a little more context on the nature of this debate or this issue that we just discussed or that we're getting ready to discuss? And I think that's been helpful too, just to help with the peer-to-peer onboarding. So speaking of topics, have you seen over the years topics that are a little bit more difficult to onboard somebody with, a little bit easier to onboard? I think the the finances piece is easier because they're dealing with such massive budgets on campus. Our conference budget is is smaller than that. And and they, of course, appreciate the nature of endowments and and long-term strategic thinking and so forth. Also, the, the idea of our strategic plan I think the piece that's probably just takes a little more time is just understanding the importance of basketball within our conference and therefore the, the, the resultant investment that happens from a campus standpoint and how our presidents have collectively agreed to that. So just understanding the nature of the sport. And then the, the other piece is membership, because that is such a key um, really responsibility of our presidents and chancellors, understanding how do we assess a potential member candidate as to whether or not they're the right fit for our league and will they help us move forward in our strategic plan. And we might like that institution or, the, or that president, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the right member for our league. So I think understanding just the full calculus that needs to go into considering a candidate in our membership strategy. It's a lot. It really is. It's, it's, it's not it's just sports. sports. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, how many schools in the league right now? We have 12 universities across a seven-state footprint. Seven-state footprint. Okay. Are they all privates? We have two privates and 10 publics. 10 publics. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that makes an interesting discussion as well, I would it, think. It really does. You know, there's certainly, we are more unified than divided on issues, and that's critical from a common value standpoint. And I think they really appreciate, frankly, the fact that we do have privates. We have some large top tier research institutions, and then some that are not as focused on the graduate experience, but more on the undergraduate. And I think we, we all, one thing we have in common is we're in some really significant major metropolitan markets, which is also fun for our student athletes when they travel from campus to campus to compete. But our presidents and chancellors have really, 
I think, um, embrace that as part of our identity, as well as I mentioned this, but there's a collective commitment to, to basketball and, and that's really unifying. Well, uh, for my podcast listeners, about a year ago, I did an interview with the former president of Northern Kentucky University talking about their transition from D2 into D1. So if you're interested in that transition to the Horizon League, it, it would be a good conversation to have. But you mentioned basketball-centric, and, and that's, a con- that's a concept that really, in my understanding, has been around for about three, four years, maybe a little bit longer. But talk, talk with my listeners about what that means and how different that is from an FBS Power 5 conference. Sure. So there's 32 Division One conferences, 10 of which are FBS, so football bowl subdivision, and, and they're competing for that postseason bowl opportunity. Then there are 22 conferences that um, are not FBS. 11 of those are called football championship. And we actually have two members of our 12 that are that do sponsor football, Robert Morris and Youngstown State, and they're very competitive. And then there are, of those 22 conferences, there are 10 that do not have football as a, as a championship um, within their league, and, and we're one of those 10. So those are the, bowl, the basketball-centric conferences, and that's, of course, 10 of our 12 members, but all 12 of our members, really, basketball is the hallmark sport on their campus. And, and I say that because, you know, we, we clearly enjoyed the success of Butler back in 2010 and 11 when they were a member of the Horizon League during both of their final four runs. And they weren't the only strong basketball member. I mean, in fact, I think to have a team make it to the final four, it takes the collective strength of your league members just during the season to really build up that team and make them postseason ready, if you will. But then also even from a metric standpoint, that's important for your seed path in terms of where you land in the bracket. So our presidents and chancellors have realized and, and agreed that the, the benefits that can come from a strong basketball program, men's and women's, can really lift your other sport opportunities on campus and frankly, help generate some revenue to offset a pretty significant expense that college sports is. So I think that they recognize that and they have and of course, there's some um, the positive media attention that comes from basketball success and exposure, which again, that, that improves your overall profile of your institution. And we've seen institutions ride that wave. So that's, that's, that's the why, if you will. And it does need to be a collective effort from a league standpoint so that we're all rowing in the same direction, so to speak, as to where the resources go. So you mentioned both men's and women's basketball. Is that a, a shift a little bit? Uh, did that come as a result of the possibility of increased media contract value for women's basketball, or is it just a shift in your emphasis? It, it's really been a shift, I'd say, probably about three years ago. So before it was popular, <laughs> we, we, and I say that with pride, um, we when our basketball championship um, first found a home in Detroit, prior to that, it was just at the high, highest seed at, at the end of the season as to where our tournament would be. And, and we recognized to really make this move to be this basketball centric conference, we, we need to have really four pillars. One is we need to schedule right. We need to have a strong TV contract. Our membership strategy has to be aligned with basketball success. And we've got to have a postseason tournament that's a destination, predetermined site where we really build equity in a community. So we were in Detroit for two years and we set for the men and we said, this is great for the men. We've got to do the right thing and bring the women here. And we did that the last two years in Detroit. When we went to bid to move the tournament, we said that any, for any city that wants the Horizon League, it's both men's and women's. 
And we had some cities opt out, believe it or not, but that just means they weren't a right value fit. And Indianapolis, where we've landed, and this is our home, really embraced both tournaments being here. And through that, that I think that just further illustrates our commitment to not just men's, but women's basketball as well. Does that help inform the um, advocacy that <clears throat> women's basketball committee members have said, let's have both the men's and women's final four in the same city? Yeah, well, that, that is a current matter of consideration by those committees. I actually serve on the Women's Basketball Oversight Committee for the NCAA. We just had meetings this week um, as a lead up to the Constitution Convention. And that's one of several items that came out of the Kaplan Report, which is you know short for this larger gender equity review that the NCAA um, really initiated after last year's Final Fours um, revealed the inequities there. So our oversight committee and the women's basketball selection committee, as well as our counterparts on the men's side, are looking at several of those recommendations, including um, a how could combining these final fours, even for one year in this next bid cycle, create some opportunities and synergies that we don't currently have because they are separate. Um, but that, that that's part of a long list of recommendations under review. Yeah, it makes sense. But at least you've got that experience now to draw on to be able to bring that to the table. Yes, I'm very biased because it's been spectacular here. I mean, our, our city really enjoys having it. In fact, our women's championship is at noon on International Women's Day, um, which has just worked out for us. But it's March 8th and it's broadcast on ESPNU, which is terrific exposure. But it's a, an incredible community event. You know, the last time we had fans in 2020, right before the world shut down, we had the mayor there, that we had 2,000 school kids there. It was this electric environment in the middle of the day for our, our women student athletes. So that's what we're going to replicate. Um, I can't guarantee the mayor will be there, but we'll have school students there at noon on March 8th this year. It'll be fantastic. That's very good. That's very good. So looking back, back to this week and with the shift of responsibility heading towards each individual division, and you having worked at the NCAA for 15 years, no small thing, what kinds of things do you think will be delegated to the divisions and what kinds of things might the conferences manage and perhaps include the antitrust issues in this? Okay, there's multi-layers to that question. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you, the, uh, so the convention vote was just yesterday, so this is very timely. And as we, as the membership, and, the, and it is historic to have all three divisions in one room, I, it does harken back to my time at the NCA because that used to be more normal before the governance shift in the 1996 where we truly federated. But even then the divisions would still gather more at the convention than they have in the last five years. So I, I thought it was still special to have everyone in the room. And then um, saying harking, harking back to those days, there's not always um, widespread agreement. And there was some really, I would say, impassioned pleas, particularly from our division three colleagues and um, former division three student athletes. So I, I, my ears perked up a bit as they were walking up to the microphone, but they were, they objected um, to some of these changes that were ultimately adopted and 80% of those present voted in favor. So it was an overwhelming majority, um, but I appreciated the robust debate for probably a good hour before the vote was called. And I think that's significant so that it wasn't just a, a mere stamp. Um, there, there was actually thought and consideration and the constitutional committee that was proposing this draft comprised of members from all three divisions were really speaking as to, hey, this is a compromise. We've been working on this for six months. And so to your question of what does the future hold, each division now does have more autonomy 
especially in the areas of governance. So how do, how do we want to structure ourselves? The Knight Commission has proposed some pretty provocative thoughts as to removing the importance of football from the NCAA governance structure since the NCAA is really fueled by basketball. It's an interesting proposition. Um, it will, we will also have more autonomy from a membership standpoint. So what's, what is it the minimum, if you will, that an institution should commit to from an athletic standpoint to be division one, from a scholarship, from an overall investment, from health and safety commitment, athletics trainers, mental health support. So I think that that floor will rise. And then I think there will also be some questions from perhaps the power of five of, should we have the caps we currently have on some scholarship sports? Meaning should that ceiling um, just raise quite a bit? Yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting. And one of the things that I wonder about is will this, the divisional structures get down to the point of this is how, this is what the NCAA is going to fund in terms of expectations. Let's just take mental health, for example. He, he, we're going to provide you the resources to hire a mental health counselor. Uh, would, it, would it come down to that level of detail or do you think there'll still be enough autonomy? I don't think it will come to that level of detail just because I think we realize, and I've even seen this across our 12 campuses, there are some with mental health who've really brought it in-house to athletics and others who have been able to be able to really collaborate across campus and tap into the institutional resources for the full student body with a recognition that there are some unique issues for student athletes in this mental health space. I think the, the bottom line though, is there will need to be some demonstration of commitment and even a resource commitment, how those resources are operationalized, I think will be left for even institutional or maybe conference prescription. But I do think that we will see more of a requirement because I think even we've seen that with the pandemic, but even, I mean, now there's a shortage of athletics trainers yeah. But that doesn't mean we can't, that we still can't ensure we're providing that support. So that does mean there's going to have to be a greater resource just in pure economics of supply demand. So um, tying back into what you said earlier about the conference, then making some decisions, that would be where the board, your board would come in and deciding what to prioritize, right? That's right. And, and I think that that's part of what will be seen. And that's to, um, to tie in your reference to the Supreme Court decision in Alston. The Supreme Court was pretty clear both in oral argument and, and in the decision that conferences can regulate even when it comes to the financial, um, what is provided financially to student athletes and permitted because we don't have enough of a market share to, buy, to create an, an antitrust concern. It's the NCAA that really walks a very fine line or dangerous line anytime they're regulating any piece of the financial model for student athletes. So that's why I think what we're going to see is, okay, conferences, it's really up to us as 12 members, what do we wanna to agree to? So even you know, the Supreme Court said, you can now provide an additional 6,000 educational expenses, but if conferences wanna say, no, we're not going to, we can keep that ceiling lower. Now we have not done that, but some conferences may choose to just from a sustainability standpoint, as well as to try to keep their um, level playing field, if the proverbial level playing field is somewhat competitive. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, actually, I think this is gonna require more of your board 
in terms of deciding where your limits are, you know, in terms of really understanding, because the pressure might be on to say, well, that's not what the Big East is doing. So maybe we should be doing what the Big East is. I mean, so how do you have that, those conversations? I know this is way off in the future, but, you know, in terms of thinking about that. No, you're, you're exactly right. Just in terms of what we are planning for is what level of engagement um, is needed and how do you strike that balance? So we have a council that is comprised of our 12 athletics directors, a student athlete representative, a faculty representative, and a senior woman administrator representative. So a 15 member body and they meet, they've been meeting weekly for about the last year, primarily dealing with COVID and competitive ramifications. And then like just last week, updating our safety protocols when the CDC guidance came out. But then we also have strategy sessions with them where we just tackled the Alston and the impact of this and then they have to elevate their thinking to our board. And it's we don't always get it right from a governance standpoint as to what issues should be elevated versus not. But I think we're, we're certainly, we get it right more often than not um, in terms of what, which time do these issues need to bubble up to the board versus not. And before we hopped on the podcast, you mentioned that you were a trustee for nine years. So how does that inform your thinking? It, um, well, it, I loved being a trustee at my alma mater, Millican. It, first of all, it helped me have a greater appreciation for just the full enterprise of, of a university. And there are so many different pieces to that health and well-being of a university. So I understand athletics is part of that picture for our presidents and chancellors, but certainly just, just a part of it. From that piece, I really appreciate. And then it's helped me also appreciate, I report to 12 university presidents and chancellors. Well, they also have a board that they have to manage up to, if you will, but also they're figuring out what points of communication are relevant versus not. So I at least appreciate somewhat the seat they have to sit in relative to their board of trustees. And, and it's tough. <laughs> um, so I, that's a gross understatement, but I, I at least have some empathy for the challenges, but also the importance of, of ensuring that you've got that, that board oversight and, and responsibility. And fiduciary responsibility. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Are there any other legal cases that are coming in the pipeline that you're considering and keeping an eye on? Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a few. The NCA has a lot of um, outside litigation, primarily in the concussion space, health and safety, which doesn't affect the Horizon League because most of those cases are football um, tied to f- football um, instances. The, the case, though, that I think will be the next big one, if you will, is the House Oliver case. Those are consolidated cases, but those are active student athletes who have essentially sued and and they're now seeking class certification. That's why it would be really significant, but they're essentially seeking back pay for lost opportunity to earn name image like to um, make money capitalize on their name image likeness since that just was deregulated in the past year that if one if it's even certified you know, as you know, the litigation costs will be significant for the association moving forward. But then two, if they're successful, the the damages will be towards our member schools and our conferences will probably be there as as somewhat of a backdrop. But I think it would be, especially at the power five level, so significant from a damages standpoint, it it would force a change because I, I think with some, they, they probably do not have the um, just the resources to pay what some of those student athletes would be demanding. So that has potentially even bigger implications than what we've already seen. Yes. And I don't know that this is good news, but I've 
I've asked um, some legal experts, just what's the horizon on that? No pun intended, you know, the timeline and they, it's, it's in the three to five year window. So we do have some time to prepare for and plan. So speaking of conferences, conferences realignment, uh, there's been a lot of that in football. Could you ever see basketball conferences trying to get bigger and realign together? Um, so, well, I think in the last few years, we've learned never say never. <laughs> um, the, absolutely, you're right that the majority of conference realignment, especially in the last 24 months, has really been football driven. And we've seen that both at the FBS level, but then even more recently, the FCS level with many members leaving the Ohio Valley Conference at the FCS level to go to other leagues where we've seen limited change, but it's happened of late is with those basketball centric conferences, of course, which we are one. Um, but you have seen the Atlantic 10 grow from 14 members to 15, which was really significant when they added Loyola. And then now that there's a trickle effect where now the Missouri Valley, since they lost Loyola, they're, they're, they've added, they added Belmont prior to then, probably looking for additional change, which could affect us. And that goes back to board engagement. So <laughs> as I meet with our presidents and chancellors, we'll, we'll, we'll full circle here. But part of it is we have to prepare for and manage attrition. And we have bylaws and strategies in place for that. But then we also always have a growth strategy so that when the time is right, if we want to expand, then we're certainly positioned to do that. So it's a, it's a wise idea to always have a back pocket. <laughs> That's plan, right. right? <laughs> Multiple plans, A, B, and C. That's right. That's right. So my last question to you is, there may be a few folks out there who are listening who aspire to become a college president. From your years of working with them, what kinds of advice would you offer them? Uh, well, first of all, go for it. Um, I, I think being a college president, as I watch our presidents and chancellors, it, I, I said this about being a trustee, but it's a labor of love. I mean, those are, they are really tough, demanding, and also important and fulfilling jobs. So, and I think what we've also seen is there's the traditional tract where presidents and chancellors go up through academia. And then we've even seen some non-traditional here in the state of Indiana with Mitch Daniels, who's been wildly successful at Purdue. He's certainly on the non-traditional track. So I think people, it's not necessarily a one size fits all either, which is good because I think that opens it to a broader pool of qualified individuals. Um, but I, I, I do think you have to have a real passion for higher education. And given that the challenges that higher ed is facing in the future from even a sustainability model, I think we need new talent and we need innovative talent because I believe so much in higher education and the transformative value it provides. Athletics is just a piece of that. We need people who want to do that and are committed to it. So I say go for it. And then the final piece is get a mentor. You know, college presidents and chancellors are so giving. If a young person reaches out to them or that you don't have to be young, so to speak, but just a person reaches out and says, hey, I'm interested in learning more about how you got to where you are, what's been your path, which I always ask, I think then they can take you under their wing and, and really be that mentor and champion for you.